you got a Bible, we're back in Mark. Going to look at the Gospel of Mark again in Mark chapter 2. So we're going to talk tonight about Matthew, the tax collector. And before we read our text, he hasn't been dead that long. I'm sure all of you remember Paul Harvey and his rest of the story. I'm not going to do an imitation because it'd be bad. How he'd do that is he'd give the first name of whoever it was he was talking about, and then he'd tell their story. And then at the very end, he'd give their full name. Sometimes he'd trick you pretty good, and you'd be like, wow, I would have never realized that about that person. And so I'd like to do that tonight in light of we're going to talk about Matthew, the tax collector, and his conversion. So there was a boy. His name was George. That's the way Paul Harvey would start it. And he had a father who was a tax collector in Prussia. And the family, because of that, just like Matthew will see, he was very wealthy, and he gave his kids a lot of money. Before the age of 10, George was stealing as much of that money as he could. And his father one time counted a certain sum of money, left it on his dresser to test his son to find out if he's stealing money or not. And next thing you know, sure enough, George had stolen money and put it in his shoe. And his father found it and punished him. The only effect that had on George was it just made him think, I've got to be a little bit smarter next time I do my thieving. So his father sent him to train as a Lutheran minister wasn't a spiritual reason that he sent him. He sent him because a Lutheran minister was going to have a comfortable living and live well. That's what that was all about. So there was no true religious training in George's life. Didn't come from the Lutherans, right? <laughs> he was just worldly. In fact, when he was confirmed at the Lord's Supper at age 14, he took almost all the money that he's supposed to give to the minister, took 90% of that money and stuck it in his own pocket. That's quite the way to get confirmed at the Lord's Supper. And so when his father got transferred to another location, George stayed behind, and there was people that owed his dad money, and good old George collected all that money and spent it on sinful pleasures. So one time he deceived all these people to give him money, tricked them into giving him money somehow, and he went to this expensive hotel. He lived there, and he partied until the money ran out. And when that happened, he went to a nearby local village hotel, and he acted like he had a lot of money because he liked that hotel living, and the guy kind of suspected something wasn't right there. And he says, look, I want you to give me your best suit of clothes. I'm going to hold on to that in case something comes up. Well, sure enough, George didn't have any money. And he had to run away and leave his suit of clothes behind. And so he goes to another hotel and tries the same trick. And this time they find him out and he tries escaping through a window. And guess what? They were there and they caught him. And he's thinking he'd gotten out of so many scrapes before. He thought they'd have mercy and they had no mercy on George. George said this, he says, I now found myself at the age of 16, an inmate of the same dwelling with thieves and murderers and was treated accordingly. So he spent a month in jail and his dad finally paid all the in debts, paid the debts he had for jail and had enough money to give George for George to get home. So later, George went to college spent all the money that his dad gave him for college on sin and pleasure. And when his money ran out and he's supposed to have all this money to pay his tuition, pay his books, what did he do? He acted like his case was pried open, his guitar case had been broken. He wears half his clothes, goes into the director's office and said, I've been robbed. And he was such a good actor, the director believed him and said, here, let me help you out. And even his dad sent him more money. Then he goes on a trip with some friends of his at that college and I don't know why, but they put him in charge of all of the funds. And so George, this is how he treated his friends. He stole 
the money from his friends. So who is this man, George? Lived like a thief and couldn't be trusted with money. Anyone want to take a guess? George Mueller. Wow. So George Mueller gets converted. We're saying this is the change God can make in a man's life. He was converted and so changed by faith that this man now in his life, he built five orphanages that in today's money would have been worth $9 million, over $9 million. And he never asked for a penny, only made his request known to God. He gave away his own personal income. This is besides the money that came in for those orphanages. Out of his own personal income, he gave over $180,000 of his own money. And when he died, I believe it was at the age of 93, you know how much money he had? Could have had a lot more than this. He was valued at $800. $500 of that $800 were books, furniture, and household items he had. He had $350 cash when he died. So what caused his conversion? Does anybody know what caused his conversion? Y'all remember reading the book of George Miller? If you haven't read it, it's a good autobiography, or there's some good biographies to read about him. Well, he had a friend, Beza was his name. I, I believe that's how you'd pronounce it, B-E-Z-A. He was about as wicked as George was. They were party buddies. But this guy got converted and was going to this little prayer meeting up in this house. And he invites George to it. And George really didn't have much interest, but just decided I didn't have anything else to do that night. Goes to that prayer meeting, and he is so impressed with the piety of these people and listening to their prayers. Not like the prayers he heard in his Lutheran training. And not only that, they treated him nice. They accepted him. Even though he was a wicked sinner, and they knew it. And that's what we're going to see tonight happens with Jesus and sinners. That's how he converts people. So look here in Matthew chapter 2, beginning in verse 13. It says, And he, Jesus, went forth again by the seaside, and all the multitude resorted unto him, and he taught them. Verse 14, And as he passed by, he saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus, sitting at the receipt of custom, and said unto him, Follow me. And he arose and followed him. And it came to pass that as Jesus sat at meat in his house, many publicans and sinners sat also together with Jesus and his disciples, for there were many, and they followed him. And when the scribes and Pharisees saw him eat with publicans and sinners, they said unto his disciples, How is it that he eats and drinks with publicans and sinners? And when Jesus heard it, he said unto them, They that are whole have no need of a physician, but they that are sick. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. And I'm saying verse 17 is the key to understanding what we're going to talk about tonight. Because when you have something in all three of the Gospels, which you have this account, and you have that saying that is right there in verse 17 in all three Gospel accounts, there is a message there that we all need to hear and give heed to. And that's what he's saying. This is Jesus' our Lord's purpose and mission. That's what he's saying. We'll read it again, verse 17. They that are whole have no need of a physician, but they that are sick. He says, I came not to call the righteous, but he's saying, I came to call sinners to repentance. So I want to deal with this section right here. I want to go back to verse 13 and we'll work our way down. We see right there in verse 13 that Jesus is back at the seashore. 
And why is he back there? If you remember from what we've studied before, the crowds at the house where he was trying to teach. Remember the guy couldn't get in, couldn't even get close. They're crowded around the door. They're all crowded around the outside. They want to hear this man speak. The one that speaks with authority like no one else ever spoke for. So to accommodate those crowds, he leads them to the seashore. And if you read Luke's 5 of this same account, it gives a little more detail about that. Jesus gets into Peter's boat, and he asked Peter, he said, can you just go a little bit away from land, which he does, and then he sits down in Peter's boat and teaches the crowd. Because you can have an enormous crowd off that seashore sitting there listening, and any of you that have been around a sea or in water, he's out in that boat a little ways. Your voice carries off that water a great distance, and it's really easy to hear. No problem there, and that's what he's doing. And Matthew, we've said this, but I want to say it again. He doesn't give so much the details of what Jesus taught, but he puts great emphasis on the fact that Jesus taught. So look, you're here in 2, look over chapter 1, verse 15, and it says, He went preaching the gospel of the kingdom, saying, The time is fulfilled, the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent ye and believe the gospel. Look down in verse 21 then, And they went into Capernaum. And straightway on the Sabbath day, he entered into the synagogue, and what did he do? It says he taught. Verse 39, and he said unto them, let us go into the next towns that I may preach there also. He says, for therefore came I forth. In chapter 2, verse 2, it says, and straightway many were gathered together insomuch that there was no room to receive them. No, not so much as about the door. And what did he do? He preached the word unto them. And then here in verse 13, we're saying he went forth again by the seaside and all the multitude resorted unto him. And what did he do? It says he taught them. And let me say this as nice as I can. To a lot of people today, teaching is becoming unimportant, less important. And let me just say this. It's good to remember Paul's warning to Timothy in 1 Timothy 4.1. And he says this. Now, the Spirit speaks expressly. And that word expressly means the Spirit of God says in no uncertain words. That means it is going to be this way. The Spirit speaketh expressly that in the latter times some shall depart from the faith, giving heed to seducing spirits and doctrines of devils. And so what does he say is going to cause some to depart from the faith? Now, that's as bad as it gets. That means you're going to go to hell. Perdition to depart from the faith. And what does he say does that? Some give heed to seducing spirits. Spirits that lead people. They mislead people into error. They lead them astray. And doctrines of devils. Twisted truth. Oh, there's a little bit of truth in there. But it's twisted truth. Distorted truth. Appears to make sense. And when does that happen? When does he say that happens? In the latter times. In this last days is when it's going to happen. And I'm saying, just trust me on this. There is every flavor of truth out there that you can find today. The grand delusion spoken of in 2 Thessalonians is happening. And who are the ones that are deceived? Go back and read 2 Thessalonians, a very sober scripture to read. Those who didn't love the truth, received not the love of the truth, that they might be saved. But it said what? Because the truth is going to cost you. It's going to cost you to live a certain way. 
And the people that didn't want to receive that love of the truth, which it's implying you live it, it said they had pleasure in unrighteousness, that they might be damned. And God sends them, people that turn their back on the truth, strong delusion. So listen, ministry, a good job, a nice family, and health, having all of those things, if it's not based on truth, what good is it? And so let me say this, my number one concern, if I was going to move somewhere, go to another church, guide my family, this sounds self-serving to say this, believe me, it's not. I'm just saying, this is why I'm here. This is why I'm here wishing Brother Hamilton was up here preaching and I was out like you guys hearing him speak. That's why I'm here, is because all of that stuff, you need to belong to a church that faithfully preaches the whole counsel of God. A church that is going to teach you how to trust the Lord and walk in holiness. And there are very few out there. And so to put fellowship and ministry ahead of truth and correct doctrine, I'm just saying, I'm pleading. <laughs> I can't make people believe it. I can't make people respect what I have to say, but I know what I'm saying is right. It's dangerous. So nobody's claiming we got all the truth. I'm not saying that. And anybody that leaves here, I'd be glad to have somebody leave here that has a ministry that God's put them in to go somewhere else and minister. I've got no problem with that. I for sure don't. But to go somewhere and plant yourself with no church, no truth, you got little kids, you got a family, to me that would be a problem. That's why I'm back here. That's why I'm here. Because it's important. And to be around other believers, that you get in the trial, and a serious trial like we've been taught, and it's right to trust the Lord, you want to have people that you know they're not going to be telling you you need to do something. You're going to want people that are saying, we're going to be on our knees praying for you and seeing God's faithfulness and encouraging you with their testimonies of God's faithfulness. That's what I want. I'm just telling you what I would want if it was me. That was just a little parenthesis there. Sorry about that. You know, Mark doesn't tell us what Jesus is teaching. He, like I said, he just tells us that he is teaching and that he taught a lot. But we know this from the other Gospels. In Luke 8, it says that he went through towns and villages, and the topic he preached on was the kingdom of God. And also in Luke, when he sent his disciples out to preach in Luke 9, what did he tell them to preach? About the kingdom of God. And Philip, if you read Acts 8, when he goes to the Samaritans in Samaria... It says there that he preached things concerning the kingdom of God. And all through the book of Acts, when Paul would go somewhere, up, right up through Acts 28, that is what he would preach on, the kingdom of God. And I'm saying in light of what we're seeing here in context, I can't prove this. I'm not getting dogmatic on this. But I think one aspect on preaching about the kingdom of God would be preaching about where do these people come? Where does God get the people that are going to be part of the kingdom of God. I think Jesus would have talked about that, especially in, in the context we're seeing here. And I think he would have explained and used examples from the Old Testament that God chooses his people that inhabit the kingdom, not from the upper echelon, not from the righteous people, not from the good people, but from the bad lots, the bad people. And he would have started right with Abraham. The father of the faith. Everybody in Israel liked Abraham. And we just said, wait a minute. We know how great he was and how obedient he was and faithful to God. But that's not where he came from. That's not his roots. That's not the way he started. No, he came from Ur-Chaldees. That place was steeped in false worship in the occult. 
And it says God called him out of there. That's the kind of people Jesus would be talking about. And he's saying, hey, what about Jacob? One of the descendants, one of the fathers of the faith, the fathers of Israel. I mean, you read the life of Jacob, Jesus would say, that man was the biggest deceiver. He made George Mueller look like a choir boy. He'd say, that's who God puts in his kingdom. And then we talked about Gideon one time. We talked about him. And here, you know, this guy is full of fear. He has no faith. His father has an altar set up to Baal. That's what their family worshipped. And he says, yet God came down and chose him. And then he probably would have gone on to talk about, you don't like sinners and all that. What about Rahab? She was a prostitute. That doesn't disqualify you because he had to talk about things like that. Otherwise, why are these sinners wanting to be around hearing him preach? What is it that's drawing them? They're realizing you're not excluding us like all these other religious leaders are. They think we're scum, but not Jesus. And so he's telling them people brought into the kingdom of God are those on whom God bestows his grace, not sinless saints. That's what he's going to transform them into. But rather, God picks wicked, undeserving men and women like me and you. Because the Bible teaches, our theology is, there is none righteous. The whole lump of mankind is corrupt. Every single person. Psalm 14 says, The Lord looked down from heaven upon the children of men, and he wanted to see if there were any that did understand and seek God. And his answer was, when the Lord looked down, they are all gone aside. They are all together become filthy. There is none that does good, no, not one. The Pharisees didn't act like that. <laughs> they act somehow like they were born righteous. And that wouldn't have been what Jesus would have said. And that's not what we learn in the Bible or the New Testament. So if you would, please put something there in Mark and turn over to 1 Corinthians 1. 1 Corinthians 1. You know, this is familiar, but let's look at it again. The kind of people that God chooses to inhabit his kingdom. 1 Corinthians 1, verse 26. He says, For you see your calling, brethren, how that not many wise men after the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble are called... But who does God call? It says God's chosen the foolish things of the world to confound the wise. And God has chosen the weak things of the world to confound the things which are mighty. And base things of the world and things which are what? Despised. Like a tax collector we're going to read about. Things that are despised. Has God chosen, yea, and things which are not to bring to not things that are. Why? Verse 29, that no flesh should glory in his presence. Because in verse 30, he's saying everything comes from the Lord Jesus Christ. Nothing comes from us. Because he says, but of him, the Father, are you in Christ Jesus, who of God he is made unto us. He is our wisdom. He is our righteousness and sanctification and redemption. Amen? It's all in him. We're weak-based, foolish, and despised people. We're a mess. When we get started. And that's why, like Greg said, he's got to do a work in us. It's an ongoing process, isn't it? So turn over to chapter 6 of 1 Corinthians, just a few chapters over. And look what he says here. 1 Corinthians 6, 9, he says, Know you not that the unrighteous, they shall not inherit 
the kingdom of God. Don't be deceived. Don't let anybody kid you, he's saying. If you're a fornicator, an idolater, an adulterer, a feminine, abuser of yourselves with mankind, a thief, if you're covetous, a drunkard, a reviler, an extortioner, he's saying, don't be deceived. You will never inherit the kingdom of God. And I love verse 11. He says, and such what were some of you. All of us were that, right? So he's not saying the fact you've done those things disqualifies you. No way. That's not the problem. The problem is, if you are that, you have to be were that. Such were some of you. But now, what is he saying? You are washed, sanctified, justified in the name of the Lord. And how is that done? By our own efforts? Mm -mm. It says there, by the Spirit of God. So go back to Mark, if you would. Mark chapter 2. God does it all. So from that last verse we read in 1 Corinthians 6, what does that tell us? That tells us that God, the Lord Jesus Christ, he calls sinners, doesn't he? Didn't we read that in verse 17? To repentance from their former life. And so look, that's what he's doing here in verse 14 of Mark chapter 2. And it says, and as he passed by, he saw Levi, that's Matthew, that wrote the gospel of Matthew. He saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus, sitting at the receipt of custom, and he said unto him, Follow me. And he arose and followed him. So Levi was a tax collector. He was employed by Herod Antipas, who was employed by Rome. That's who he collected taxes for. So he's sitting there by the seashore, so he's probably getting taxes off these fishermen because they made a lot of money off of fish, fishing out of the Sea of Galilee. And so these guys, the way they got their little tax collecting rights was they would bid. And so one guy's like, look, I'll get 50,000 bucks out of these people. And another guy says, no, I can collect 75,000. And Rome says, we'll give it to the highest bidder. And so the way it worked then is whatever you could get above your bid went in your pocket. And listen, these tax collectors were crooked. And so the way they got rich is they would charge way more than they had to, than they should have, than their bid was. And the sky was the limit. And they would extort as much as they could from the people. So it's like going to a crooked auto mechanic and not getting a price and just leaving your car there. And I'm telling you, you will get extorted. You will know how it feels to be around a tax collector. I said a crooked auto mechanic. Go to West. He'll treat you right. He won't take your money, right? These people were hated. You've got to understand that. It's not like, I mean, I guess people hate the IRS about the same way. But the Jews lumped the tax collectors in with thieves, with murderers. And they considered them to be traitors to God because they felt like they betrayed Israel. And just for a tax collector to come in your house, it rendered your house, according to the, the writers of the law, all their little law, the minutia, your house was unclean. So Jews, you couldn't even take money or an alm, a gift. If a tax collector wanted to help you out and give you some money, uh-uh. Their money was considered dirty because they got it from robbery. And so they were so hated, the rabbi said, you can't lie to anybody, it's wrong to lie, but you can lie to a tax collector. That's okay, that's what they told him. And listen, they were kicked out of the synagogue, they couldn't go in the synagogue. Families that had tax collectors in their family that were Jewish, that was considered a disgrace. And so, you know all that? These people are hated, despised, they're considered crooks, and yet, Jesus calls this man who everybody considered to be unclean on the same page as a murderer. He calls him to follow him. And we got to understand from Matthew's side, too, this was no small thing what he did. So we read the same thing we read when we talked about Peter, James, John, and Andrew. 
that they all just left their nets and forsook them and follow them. But there's a big difference here with Matthew. You know why? He's got a cushy job and he's got a guaranteed huge income for life. But I'm going to tell you what, he walks away from that like he did. There's no going back. He's not going to get that position back. Uh-uh. Now those guys, they can go back to the fishing. And they did. We know that, don't we? I'm saying this guy made a huge sacrifice. And a lot of people back in the early church, they considered this a miracle equivalent to making that paralytic walk. That God could change a man's heart that completely. A work of grace. That God takes that man and changes him on the inside. That's what that call, that's what the Spirit of God through Jesus Christ saying, follow me, did. Repentance came with that. A change on the inside. And he says, I will fully forsake all because that is literally what he's doing. Everything he had to follow you. It's worth it. That's what that anointing on the Lord Jesus Christ and hearing him preach and seeing his miracles. Full devotion is what Matthew gave him. And let me ask you, have you experienced that transformation? That same transformation, you'll say, no matter what, I will follow you, no matter what it costs me. And I think many have here. You see it in a lot of ways. People have given that kind of sacrifice. But what about conversions? where there is no apparent change in a life. No hunger for prayer. No hunger to read and understand the word, to understand your Lord. No desire to fellowship with other saints. No urgency to share this life that has been given to you with anyone else, with others. And I would say this. You know, too many times things go in one ear and out the other. But I'm going to say this. The New Testament doesn't know of any true conversions like that. American Christianity does, but the Bible and the New Testament don't know of conversions where those things don't take place. So there's a problem when that's the way it was. And so Matthew's first act as a converted disciple of the Lord Jesus Christ is he's throwing a party for his friends. He is excited. He wants to share this life that he's had so they can meet Jesus. And that's the second point. Jesus calls sinners to repentance and into his fellowship. Look at verse 15. It says, And it came to pass that as Jesus sat at meat in his house, many publicans and sinners sat also together with Jesus and his disciples. For there were many. And what does it say they did there at the end of verse 15? It says they followed him. I'm telling you, Jesus did on that day something that no religious leader would do. No Jewish religious leader would do, and that was eat with sinners. <laughs> and the way they, this is the Mishnah, one of their writings back then. It describes sinners. They were gamblers, moneylenders, people who race doves for sport, people who trade on the Sabbath, thieves, the violent, shepherds, and, of course, tax collectors. Now, some of those people I just named, they're criminals, right? But some of them, they're just common, poor folk. And I would liken them to this. They're like Ford factory workers, somebody that works in the factory of Ford on a daily basis, and he likes to go down at night or on weekends and gamble at Churchill Downs and drink beer. Just somebody like that, just a common person. And Jesus is eating here, that's what we're seeing here in this text, with a bunch of these people just sitting around a huge common table. Their legs behind them, and they're eating and fellowshipping and having a meal. And that was a huge big deal back then because when you ate a meal with anybody 
That meant you were having communion with them and you were identifying yourself with them. So it's a sign of friendship and goodwill. So think of this verse. We know this verse, Revelation 3.20, Jesus says, Behold, I stand at the door and knock, and if any man hear my voice and open the door, he says, I will come into him. And what does he say he'll do? I will sup with him and he with me. And that's what the Lord is doing here. He didn't wait for him to get all straightened out. No. He came in there and they opened up the door of their hearts and he's supping with them. Ah. Because by now, I think Jesus was probably known to everybody in Capernaum. And I'm sure these tax collectors and sinners, hey, he didn't turn anybody away, either themselves or people they knew, relatives and friends. I guarantee you, some of these people, they had friends or relatives that were healed by Jesus or probably had demons cast out of them. And so they would have heard his preaching too, but you know where they wouldn't have heard him? They wouldn't have been in a synagogue. They weren't allowed in there. <laughs> but I'll tell you where they would have heard him. They would have heard him by the seashore or by that house, in that house where they were. They were probably crowding in there to hear him. And that's a lot of times what happens. It's not in the typical structured churches that people will hear the gospel. I love to go in a segregation unit in prison because those guys will they'll tell you I would never go into the chapel. And they wouldn't. But I can go to them in that segregation unit and bring the gospel to them. And listen, that's what happened in England back with George Whitfield. There were people that worked in mines. That's all they did, seven days a week working in mines. And he got it on his heart to go preach to these people, to bring the gospel to them. Not wait until they got cleaned up and came into the Church of England churches. None of them would have done it. And so George Whitfield would go there. He knew when they got off work at the end of the day, these guys' face would be totally black from working in all the whatever it is in those mines, their faces would be black, and he'd stand on a hillside and stand up there with an anointing that I wished I had and preach the gospel to these people. And he said it looked like there was white rivers running down their face because these people would be crying and repenting because of the Spirit of God coming through his preaching and the gospel, the good news he's preaching to them, hardened sinners. So he's seeking and saving the lost. Isn't that what Jesus did? You don't wait for him to come to you. That's what he did. And listen, these people, Jesus is coming and, and sitting with them. They were probably honored and shocked. <laughs> I couldn't believe. I can't believe this guy would sit here and eat with us. No other religious leader, they knew that, wouldn't have done that. They kept him out of the synagogue, let alone come and have a meal with him. Because listen, there's a social structure, just like we have in our society today. And here's how these Pharisees thought. You know, the name Pharisee means separated ones. And they had purity rules. And their purity rules not only dictated what they ate, their purity rules dictated who they ate with. So listen, this is, comes from their writings. They gathered in hallowed groups to eat together in purity and to reduce the risk of any pollution from the non-observant. Pharisees believed that sinners should be kept at arm's length until decontaminated by proper repentance and the ceremonial rites. Yeah, somebody went through everything and repented in the right way, agreed to do all their rules and all that. Yeah, they'd let you in, do their little ceremonial rites. Before we put down the Pharisees too much, they started off with good intentions. They probably started 200 years before Jesus. No one knows the exact date. And they're like the Hasidic Jews today. And their whole goal was Greece was going to come in and their culture was going to overtake 
Judaism and Israel, and they're protecting. They're, that was their intention, where we want to protect our people, our religion, our culture from Greek culture coming in here and wiping it out, and it probably would have. So it started off good, but a good thing became a bad thing. So listen, by the time Jesus is on the scene, these guys, so Moses gave us how many commandments? Ten. And a few other to go along with, but basically ten. By the time Jesus came on the scene, the Pharisees had 613 commandments that they used to interpret Moses' law. 248 do's and 365 don'ts. And they added other laws to ensure that the righteous would not become impure by their contact with sinners. That's what was going on. So it all just became this tremendous burden on the people, and we know that. And so what Jesus is doing by eating with these tax collectors and sinners, he is disobeying their interpretation of the law and their traditions. He wasn't sinning. They thought he was. But he kept God's law perfectly. And I like this. One guy said this. I thought this was good. Their concern for purity wasn't a positive thing. It wasn't a good thing. And so Jesus says, the physician is not sent to the whole but to the sick. And like this guy says, a surgeon cleans up, makes himself pure. Why? So that he can go and minister properly to the sick. These guys, they should have been the physicians of their day. They were cleaning themselves up so they could stay separated and avoid not be contaminated. They're missing the whole point of God, right? And they could not accept what Jesus did. And Jesus, though, he didn't care. You think that bothered him that they didn't like him? Uh-uh. He's bringing in new wine. And these are the ones that he is going to eat the heavenly banquet with in the end. <laughs> he doesn't care what those people think. And so look at the end of verse 15. It says, for there were many of these people, many of these publicans and sinners, and it says they followed him. Got the same call as Matthew. The same grace and gift of repentance was given to him, and it says, just like Matthew, they followed Jesus. And I'll tell you what, I think these guys in that dinner, they probably had a lot of questions that they'd like to ask Jesus about. So I heard of a guy over in England. He went to a pub. And he's telling people that, and they're like, went into a pub? Well, he went into a pub, and after everything got settled down, the, the pub owner allowed him to preach the gospel and let the people, these people, they were probably in different stages of being inebriated or drunk or whatever, but they're asking him questions, and he's preaching the gospel to him. He's not drinking himself. And people came up, and they had a problem with what he did. He says, wait a minute. The commandment is I'm not to get drunk. I wasn't drinking. It isn't that I couldn't go in there. And Ray Comfort, I remember him sharing that he had a neighbor. His neighbor liked to drink beer. Well, I mean, that'd be easy just to, hey, that beer drinker, I'm not going to have anything to do with him. But no, Ray would go over and talk to him and be nice to him. And the guy invited him, hey, come on in, Ray. Come on in and talk to me. You want a beer? And Ray's like, no, I don't want a beer. Just give me a soda and I'll be good. But he's in there talking to this guy. He's not avoiding him because this guy is just some foul-mouthed beer drinker. Isn't that what we have here with what Jesus is doing? Not avoiding people? And that's the way we have to be because you have to think, is there someone that you couldn't eat with, talk to, or show kindness because of how rough they appear? How rough they appear? Because Jesus is rubbing elbows here with some pretty rough characters. And so when he does that, the third thing we want to talk about, Jesus calls sinners to repentance and it produces friction or problems for him. 
So like we said earlier, sharing a table with someone was a sign of goodwill and friendship. And the Pharisees had neither goodwill nor friendship with regard to these tax collectors and sinners. They hated them. And they are truly shocked by what Jesus is doing, that he disregards their traditions and laws. And they can't understand, why would this holy man go in there and associate with these people and make himself unclean? And so look what it says, what they say here in verse 16. And when the scribes and Pharisees saw him eat with publicans and sinners, they said, well, they won't talk to him. They do it indirectly. They said unto his disciples, how is it that he eats and drinks with publicans and sinners? Now listen, they're not really raising a question. They cannot believe this. They're making a shocked statement. And listen, that's a common problem these people had with the Lord Jesus Christ. And we talked about it Sunday in Luke 15, beginning of that chapter. It says that then drew near unto him, again, all the publicans and sinners for to hear him. And the Pharisees and the scribes murmured, saying, this man receives sinners and eats with them. In Matthew eleven nineteen, it says this, the son of man came eating and drinking, and they say, this is Jesus speaking, and they say, behold, he's a gluttonous man and a wine-bibber, a friend of publicans and sinners. And Jesus says, but wisdom is justified of her children. So let me ask you a question. So we believe in holiness here, living a separated life. That message is as true as it's ever been. But are, because of that message, are we to totally avoid sinners? So put something there again in Mark and turn back again to 1 Corinthians, if you would, please. 1 Corinthians 5. 1 Corinthians 5, verses 9 through 13. And Paul writes this. He says, I wrote unto you in an epistle not to company with fornicators. Oh, you're like, that's easy. I won't. But he says, he doesn't stop there. He says, but not altogether with the fornicators of this world or with the covetous or extortioners or with idolaters. For then, he said, you've got to go out of the world. He says, but now I have written unto you not to keep company if any man that is called a brother be a fornicator or covetous or an idolater, or a railer, or a drunkard, or an extortioner. He's saying if someone's calling themselves a Christian or a brother, he says, you don't eat with somebody like that. That's a whole different ballgame. But if it's a worldly person that's not a member of the church, he's saying no problem. Saying the same thing Jesus says. Don't eat with somebody that's a brother that's living that way. But he's saying that's how you reach the people in the world. That's what he's saying. The same thing the Lord said. But I'm going to tell you something. When you minister to those who are considered to be trouble, outcasts, drug addicts, strange people, or prisoners, don't expect to get a lot of applause from the religious world. I'll tell you, I learned this. I'm going to the seminary. What's the seminary? That's training people to be ministers of the Lord Jesus Christ. I can't tell you how many times people would be like, oh, okay, well, what do you do? What's your ministry? And they say, I'm 55. They figure I'm doing something. Are you a pastor? At that time, it was like, no, I go into prison, and I have been preaching prison, and they're like, oh. You can see they're kind of their face drop. Oh, that's what you do. Like, well, what are you going to do for ministry? And I'm like, no, that is what I do for ministry. I'm like, you got to be kidding me. I'm saying it happened all the time. You know, and my dad wasn't exactly thrilled that, you know, that's what I'm doing. You're going to the seminary, and you're going to preach to prisoners. And I'm saying that's the reaction you're going to get. You know, why waste your time on those people? They're raised eyebrows. You know what they're thinking. Whether they say it or not, why are you wasting your time on those people? And I'd like to say, well, why should anybody have wasted their time on me? 
because I should have been right next to that guy in that cell. I just didn't get caught. <laughs> Literally. You know, it's funny. Uh, it's like I said, when Whitfield and Wesley, they began to preach the new birth. It wasn't being preached in the churches. And they said, you won't let us preach it here. We're going to go out in the open air. And they preached open air and people were getting converted and all that. Do you think the religious people are rejoicing when that happened? Uh-uh. They got kicked out of the church. We don't want you in here. You're not preaching in here anymore. That's it. Just like the Pharisees. And the Spirit is alive and well today. Believe me. Down in verse 17, when they object to Jesus eating with the tax collectors and sinners, Jesus answers them. Get back over to Mark 2. Look what he says to him here in verse 17. He answers with a proverb. And when Jesus heard it, he said unto them, They that are whole have no need of a physician, but they that are sick. And listen, nobody could argue with that. Everybody knows that's the way it is, right? So they don't argue with that. But then, like I said when we started, then he states his mission. He said, I came not to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. And so their question they asked in that previous verse is, they're asking, is it permissible for them? Why does he eat with sinners? Does God approve of that? Are you going to tell me, God? That's the question they're asking. And Jesus said he heard what they said. And he's given these hypocrites, these religious hypocrites, he's given them an answer to that. He's saying not only would God approve, he's saying that is why I came. The Father sent me, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son. That's why I came. I was in heaven, happy in heaven. The Father sent me into this world, not to call the righteous, he says, but sinners to repentance. He says, I am the great physician, and I came to heal the sick, the dying, sinners like you and me. And praise God for that, right? Zacchaeus, Luke 19 another sick tax collector that Jesus came to heal. And after that man repented, and we know that he repented because he says, I'll pay back fourfold anything I stole from anybody. Money meant nothing to him. That's what happened to these guys. That's a true sign of conversion. That greed is gone. God will deliver you from that. And Jesus said, you can't serve both God and money. And we see it in their life. And after that happened to Zacchaeus and he went in his house, Jesus says this, this day is salvation come to this house, Zacchaeus' house. He says, for as much as he also is a son of Abraham. Listen to what the Lord Jesus says, for the Son of Man is come to seek and to save that which is lost. And like I said, he doesn't wait for the lost to come to him. He seeks them out. He has to. We read earlier, there is none that seeks after God. None does good. If he doesn't seek us out, we'll never be found. That's what the Bible says. Matthew adds in his account of this, Mark stops there in verse 17, but Matthew adds this, and Jesus says this to the Pharisees. He says, you go and learn. He's saying, you know the scriptures, but you need to go and meditate on this. Really learn what it says, not just have it memorized. He goes, go and learn what this means. I will have mercy and not sacrifice, for I am not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Saying, I'm not all about all this ritual, all this sacrifice. No, I'm about having mercy. He's not putting all that down. But he's saying the goal of all that is for God to have mercy on sinners. And so I want to make three applications of what we read. 
at the end here. And here's the first thing I want to say. And this, I would say, is a word of caution. And that is, Jesus was involved with sinners, yet he never then nor now or ever condones or excuses sin. So that's not the point of what we said tonight. So reaching out to sinners or reading what we have read doesn't give us license to sin, to do things that we repented of prior to our salvation. So in other words, you know, we know what the Sermon on the Mount says. So you don't say, hey, I got this unregenerate and he's wanting me to sit here and watch this R-rated movie. And you're going to do that. And you know it's a sin to do that. That's not the point. That's not what we're talking about. You can't partake of an R-rated movie. And some of you are thinking, I'll do it on my own. Shame on you. Seriously. Jesus says you do that, you're going to hell. You watch nudity. And it's quiet. Shouldn't be that quiet. Must be a pornography R-rated movie problem, I guess. It's too quiet in here. There should be amens and not silence. But that's what it says in Matthew chapter 5. You look with lust on a woman, you've committed adultery in your heart. And if you can watch an R-rated movie and nude scenes and what goes on there and not be affected by that, you're a different type of person than I've ever met in my life. They've done studies on that. It's impossible. Or you don't go to a bar and drink whiskey because that's what sinners are doing and you're trying to reach them. Obviously, right? Jesus was a friend of sinners. He ate with them. He ministered to them. But here's the thing. He never partook of their sins. So his goal was, I'm trying to reach these people. Right? I'm saying, go with me anytime. I'll take somebody up there. Go up to Bargetown Road. You can be around those counterculture people and be around and talk to them. You don't have to be like them. You don't have to dress like them. I would go up there. I wouldn't wear a suit up there. <laughs> I'd wear a shirt like this and maybe a pair of blue jeans to talk to them. And, you know, you relate to those people. They don't turn you off. Talk to them about the gospel. There'd be times there'd be crowds of six or seven standing around asking questions, wanting to hear. But to avoid them altogether, I don't have to go up there and tear my blue jeans out and, you know, look like whatever and grow my hair down to my, you know, just so I can relate to them. That's not what we're saying here. They're not offended. They know you're phony anyways. You got to just be yourself. But that's what we're talking about. Because Jesus didn't partake of sin, it says he was such a high priest who is holy, harmless, undefiled. And it says about the Lord Jesus in Hebrews 7, he was separate from sinners and made higher than the heavens. Separate, but yet he reached out and related to them. And so here's the principle, as a man said, I like this. The boat has to be in the water, but we don't want water in the boat, if you can understand that. And if you can bear with me, if you put something in it, there in Mark and turn over to John 17, I'd like us to see this. So we have to be in the world, but we don't have to partake of the world's sins is the point. John 17, beginning in verse 14, Jesus says, I have given them thy word, and the world has hated them, because why? They are not of the world, even as I am not of the world. And he says, I pray not that you should take them out of the world. So he's saying, don't go be a monk. You've got to be in the world. I'm not doing that, but he says that you should keep them from the evil. They are not of the world, even as I am not of the world. Sanctify them through thy truth. Thy word is truth. As thou hast sent me into the world, Jesus says, even so have I also sent them into the world. And for their sakes I sanctify myself that they also might be sanctified through thy truth. 
But he says, I don't pray for the Father to make us all just stay here, just work with each other, never have anything to do with anybody out in the world. He's saying just the opposite. We don't see him living that way, do we? And so we say we believe the word. Well, what are we looking at tonight? And we talked about it Sunday with Jonah. So I knew a sister that I met over to seminary, and she was involved with this group called Scarlet Hope. And I believe the name came because of the scarlet thread of Rahab was her salvation. And what they did was she was really involved in this outreach to single mothers who were prostitutes and worked in strip clubs. But she never did that herself. But she would have them over, and they would eat with her. And she would give them clothes, and she'd put stuff every now and then on the Internet. Hey, if anybody has an extra sewing machine or whatever, we're, we're trying to teach them some skills. A lot of these women, they'd hear the gospel, they want to get saved, but they're like, they don't know anything else. They grew up on the streets. They grew up rough. But hey, that's a great opportunity for ministry, and that's what we're talking about. You don't have to be a, a stripper and a prostitute with them. No, but reach out to these people. I thought that was a great thing, and it's probably still going on over there. Anybody wants to get involved. And I saw pictures of these women, joy in their countenances. And I guarantee you that wasn't there before. And that's what it's all about. That's what we're talking about here. So, so the first point is you've got to be involved, but you can't partake, and you can't condone it. The second thing is you can't make your desire for holiness to make you what we just talked about, to avoid friendship and contact with sinners. And so Matthew 5 says this, Jesus said, you and me are the salt of the earth. But if the salt has lost his savor, where shall it be salted? It is henceforth good for nothing but to be cast out and to be trodden under foot of men. So listen, we need to be holy. That's what it means to be salt. So if we're not holy, we're not good for anything. But when we are holy salt, what do you have to do with salt? You got to put it on your corn. You got to mix it in your mashed potatoes. You can't keep it in the salt shaker, right? So we got to get mixed in with people, right? That's the purpose. Salt's purpose is to flavor and affect things. And so if we refuse to mix with sinners, what's the purpose of us being salt and light? Amen? We've got to be willing to mix with them. And the third thing I'd like to talk about with what we've talked about is the church is for those who are spiritually sick. And what I mean by that, I'm not saying we want to fill up the church with unregenerate members. There is no such thing as an unregenerate church member. What did Paul say? If someone's a fornicator, an idolater, an adulterer, a drunkard, we don't eat with those people. They're not part of the church as a member. But some may come in. Hey, how do we treat somebody that happens to come in? And not only that, you know, we need to be willing to minister to the unsaved. But the other thing is, somebody gets saved and they've had a bad background. They don't come to church and just all of that stuff's cleared up, is it? They got a lot of sinful tendencies, a lot of problems, a lot of baggage. And in that sense, we shouldn't shun them because they're not where we are. We need to help them. In that sense, I'm saying it's a hospital that God can minister, use us to minister to each other. What if someone's backslidden? They don't lose their membership over that, depending on what it is. Hey, but we need to help them out, don't we? And not shun them, and it's easy to do. Hey, that guy's not living like we know he should. We're not going to help him out. And so what's the example we have in the New Testament? The Good Samaritan. 
Here this guy is, he's dead, he's dying on the ground. And what do we have in that story? The priest and the Levite, because they want to keep their external purity, like we're talking about here in Mark 2. What do they do? They avoid that person. And we're saying your purity and all that is to help you to minister. You lose your purity, you won't be able to minister and help somebody out. You've got to keep your life free from sin so you can minister. But that's not to keep you separate from him, but to dive in there like Jesus did. Touch the leper. Help the person that's hurting. <laughs> that's what we got to do. A person gets saved, we've got to sometimes help them out. That's what body ministry is all about. And if people here, if we don't have contact with each other, you're always avoiding church fellowships, never have contact. Hey, how can you be helping people out? Someone may need your experience, your words. You may have an experience that can help somebody out. And that's what it is. That's the purpose of us having a body, to minister to each other in a lot of different ways. You know, you may need to rebuke somebody or you may need to be the one that is rebuked and helped. <laughs> They're helping you from the errors of your ways. And so listen, there are so many ways that God can use us to be the hands, the heart, and the feet of Jesus. And I'm saying we don't have to look far. We just need to pray, like our sister said, to have the heart of the Lord as we go forth. That he will bring through us life to the sick, to bring sinners to repentance. And he does that how? He's not around, is he? But he's living inside of us, isn't he? We are the ones that he will use to minister, whether it's to each other in this church, in whatever way, or to the world out there. It ain't going to be anybody else. I mean, it could be others, but I'm saying it's us as Christians. So let me ask you, who are the sick in your past? You know, would you have ministered with the unconverted George Mueller, or would you just have passed him by? He's a bad case there till the Lord got hold of him, right? Would you take a meal, like we were talking about, to the single mother that is a prostitute? Would you do that? Would you invite her to your house to eat? So with all of this, I'm not saying sometimes you need to use wisdom in what you're doing. All right, we understand all that, right? But listen, there are a lot of ministries. That the heroin deal that's going on in Shelbyville, if you don't want to be part of that, you can pray for it, right? And I know they have something going on at the local jail. There's all kinds of ministries that can take place here where you can have contact with sinners. Or Louisville, I know they have those outreaches at UofL that people could get involved with to reach foreign students. You want to do world missions? All you got to do is drive to Louisville. You don't have to go over there and live in a land that you'd probably rather not. <laughs> you can do it right here. Or nursing homes. I'm telling you, all the nursing homes, they'll take all the ministry. And who wants to do that? Well, those old people need help, a lot of them, and would appreciate it. And at prison, let me just say this, and it's fine, nobody respond, wants to do it. I, I understand it's no big deal. It's not for everyone, but I'm meeting with the chaplain in a week or two, and he's saying, I want to meet with you. They got changes taking place there about new ministry opportunities. Just let me know. I mean, it wouldn't be hard for someone you're saying, hey, I really want to reach out, which we should in some way. I'm just telling you, there's all kinds of opportunities. It's a matter, do you really want to? Because it takes, like with the Good Samaritan, it takes time and effort, doesn't it? And sometimes we're so wrapped up in ourselves and our lives and what we're doing, it's hard to take that time and effort to do that. But even if it's just your neighbors, the people you work with, people at school, if you're a Christian young person, man, is there going to be a ton of opportunities there, customers on your job, etc. 
et cetera, et cetera. A lot of opportunities. And I say, let's just take God at his word like we've heard so many times and what we've read tonight, right? What it means to be a Christian, to have the heart of our Lord, to live our lives to where we are actively seeking and saving the lost. Amen? Amen. Well, let's pray. Father, we thank you once again for the words you've given, and I ask that you'll make it real and impress it upon all of our hearts here, Lord, and give us the heart of the Lord Jesus Christ. And that just out of our gratitude and, and gratefulness for what you've done with us, how you've saved us from perishing and changed our hearts, that we'd be willing to look and pray for opportunities ourselves to do that in whatever sphere we're in, and that you'll bring people across our paths, and that you'll give us the boldness and the compassion to speak your word to them, to see them changed, and to see them brought to you. Just as you did, Lord, just as you demonstrated for us in the Gospels with Matthew and all the publicans and sinners, that we won't shun them, but we'll look for opportunities to reach them. And I just ask that you'll make us a church like that, Lord, that the Great Commission will be alive and well here. And we'll share this truth that you've given us that will bring life to others. And we thank you that you'll do that. And we thank you for speaking to us tonight and for your presence here. And we pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. Jesus, I'm living to love you, to honor you all of my days, to carry your peace to the broken, to walk in the truth of your ways. So take this life of mine, let it be light to Setting the captains free Wherever you want me So take this life of mine Let it be light to shine Setting the captains free Wherever you want me I'm living. Jesus, I'm living to love you, to honor you, to honor you all of my days, to carry, to carry your peace to the broken, to walk, to walk in the truth of your way. So take this life, so take this life of mine and let it be light to shine setting the captives free setting the captives free wherever you want me take this life of mine and let it be light to shine setting the captives free Wherever you are